Father, we do ask once again as we come to your word that you would be our teacher, that we would gain insight and challenge and encouragement and truth for our lives that can only come by your spirit. Be with us, we ask, to make it so in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know the old joke goes, how do you get a Presbyterian to change the subject to his sex life? Answer, you ask him about his finances. You ask him about his finances. Uh, Surely it is strange that we are talking about this. Surely of all things, finances are a private matter. Well, Christians have always understood that following Jesus has implications for every single area of your life. There are no limits, uh, no areas that are off limits to him and therefore no uh, areas that are off limits for us to talk about. Uh, Unfortunately, perhaps, at times. One author calculated that Jesus uh, spent 15% of his teaching, full 15% of his teaching, addressing the topics of money and possessions. That's more than he had to say on the topics of heaven and hell combined. It's like I preached on the topic for nearly two months every single year. Why such emphasis? The answer, of course, is that we know our faith and our finances are inseparable. That there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and our money. And so today we start a three-week series, a gospel guide to money. Three weeks, making money, spending money, giving money away. Making it, spending it, giving it away. And if you struggle when this topic comes up in church, it's very natural to perhaps feel skeptical or cynical, or perhaps maybe if you're a believer, you might feel uncomfortable or or a little guilty, then why don't you just hang with us for these next few weeks? Because it turns out that Jesus doesn't always give the answers we'd expect. The gospel has a very disarming quality, and I hope that this series will be the same way. So today, we start our series by thinking about making money, and I want to give you the Ten Commandments of making money, or at least my Ten Commandments of making money. Are you ready? Number one, thou shalt thank God it's Monday. I shall thank God it's Monday. This is the title of a great sermon series by John Ortberg. I encourage you to check it out. I shall thank God it's Monday. T-G-I-M. Why? Because work is a good gift from God. Work is a gift from God. When we think of work, it's very easy to kind of sigh and roll our eyes and think, Ugh. you know, especially, right, this time of year when we're about to attack it all in, in the new year. It's very easy for us to kind of have that sense of, Ugh. but in the Bible, we read that work isn't a bad thing. In fact, work is a good thing. Work, indeed, was God's idea. He is the one who invented it. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created He is the first entrepreneur. He is the first artist. He is the first engineer. And then this working God, we read, gives us work to do. Very important to note that this happens before the fall in Genesis 2, before sin has made a mess of the world in the absolute perfection of Eden. We read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to do what? To work it and to keep it. So naturally, how do you tend to think about work? Is it, you know, a kind of necessary evil that has to be endured? According to the Bible, it's a, it's a good thing. In fact, according to the Bible, to, to work is in a sense to be like God. 
It's part of what it means to be made in his image. When we work, we express something that's very core to the, the essence of our humanity. And so, when you get up tomorrow, when we all get up tomorrow, remember that you were made for Mondays. You were made for Mondays. And as you head off to the office or the classroom or the playroom to earn big bucks, median income, minimum wage, whether you work for the best boss, middle management, or even for Attila the Hun, you must say, thank God it's Monday. Second commandment of making money, thou shalt be a blessing. Thou shalt be a blessing. Don't think of your job primarily as a way to to gain blessing, but rather primarily as a way to be a blessing. Work certainly was given to us for our own welfare, but it was also given to us for the welfare of, of the larger creation. Again, we read this in Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. In other words, the work that we do, what, what you do tomorrow morning, is to have a positive impact on our world. To have a positive impact on our world. The primary goal isn't just to make as much money as possible. The primary goal is to contribute to the welfare of others. Our society, our culture should be better off because you do your job. Now, we want to be careful not to over-spiritualize this point. Because there are 10,000 occupations that are important toward a human flourishing. Think about Peter who caught fish or Paul who made tents or Jesus who made tables. All things that contribute to the welfare of humanity. We could think of lawyers and teachers, musicians, engineers, accountants, artists, nurses, realtors, stay-at-home mums, servers, trash collectors, on and on and on and on we could go. Each provides an important service to society. Each makes our lives richer. Each is a blessing. A quick word maybe at this point to those who are unable to work as they'd like, maybe because of unemployment, maybe because of health concerns. Just a word to say that God has not forgotten about you in this. As a church, we want to come alongside you in this perhaps difficult season of your journey. Our our deacons and some of our partner ministries do do a really good job uh, helping you figure out what God might have in store. But in the meantime, remember that you're still called to be a blessing. God has not put you in some kind of time out where you have nothing to offer until a new paycheck arrives. No, you have much to offer and much you can do to encourage others in this season of your own. But all of us, working for paid employment or not, need to remember that while it's not wrong to make money, we also need to make sure that we're not satisfied just with that. We should each be able to answer. Here's the, the question. How is my work having a positive impact on the world. How does, how does your job, how is what you're going to do when you get up tomorrow morning having a positive impact on the world? Don't just see your job as a way to gain blessing, but primarily as a way to be a blessing. Third commandment is perhaps the other side of, of that coin. And that is this, thou shalt accumulate wealth to the glory of God. I shall accumulate wealth to the glory of God. Let's think about this for a second. Of course, we've said your job shouldn't solely be about money. And it might sound pious and might sound noble for us to stop there, but there's really more we need to say uh, because there's more that the scriptures have to say. And it's this, that the accumulation of wealth is also not a bad thing. 
In fact, it's a good thing if you're accumulating it for the right thing. It can be a good thing if you're accumulating it for the right reasons. In the scriptures, the issue isn't really the presence or the absence of money. That's not really the, the, the issue. The Bible is much more concerned about what we do with whatever resources we've been given. Think of the parable of the talents, for example, which clearly teaches that we should make the most of the resources that God has given to us. And in the same way, wealth can be accumulated for God's glory. It can be accumulated and then put to good use. Here's some examples of how the Bible suggests it. First of all, wealth can be used to take care of our own responsibilities so we're not a burden to others. 1 Thessalonians 2. Second, wealth can be used to be a a blessing to your community so you can open your home in hospitality. 1 Peter 4 verse 9. Third, wealth can be used that you might give generously to those in need, making the gospel tangible to them in the process. James chapter 2. Fourth, wealth can be used to invest in companies that have a positive impact on the world. Proverbs 21 verse 5. Furthering the impact of these companies while creating jobs and being a blessing in the process. Next, wealth can be used to enjoy material things to God's glory. 1 Timothy 6. Wealth can be used to leave an inheritance to your children's children. Proverbs 13, verse 22. John Wesley once said, Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. We should be discerning with money, not wasting it, but accumulating it to be put to good use. Accumulate wealth and then use those resources in a way that makes God look great. Next one, get ready to stand on everyone's toes here. Thou shalt make an honest living. Listen to this verse from Proverbs, it's great. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Why don't we talk like that anymore, right? The getting of wealth, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Now, of course this is true in, overt, in an overt sense. Thou shalt make an honest living. The normal Christian ethic still applies at work. It doesn't go out the window just because competition has begun. Cheating, bribing, lying, stealing, not the way to do business. And of course, nobody in this town does business that way. Right? But this commandment, is also true in a more nuanced level that shall make an honest living. Shouldn't overstate hours on our timesheets or head home early without telling the boss. Shouldn't claim undue credit or gossip about a colleague so that we gain favor with our boss. Shouldn't take liberties with a corporate travel policy or pad that expense account. Shouldn't make promises that you know you can't keep or that you don't intend to keep. It shouldn't take advantage of an employee that you know is desperate for work. You shouldn't in this town make decisions for expediency or popularity or under political pressure. The responsibility for each of us to ask when it comes to, to honesty and integrity, am I holding myself to the highest possible standard? It doesn't matter what, what anyone else is doing, never mind the behavior of others. Am I above reproach? And so in the midst of a thousand pressures and a thousand nuances and a thousand deadlines, we always want to value integrity over achievement and faithfulness over success. One of the best pieces of advice an elder ever gave me came when one of them said, when the dust settles, make sure your integrity 
is intact. That's good advice. When the dust settles, when the craziness ends, when the drama is over, make sure that your integrity is intact. Thou shalt make an honest living. Number five, thou shalt not feel entitled. Thou shalt not feel entitled. Uh, two opposing verses on this. First of all, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes Jesus, who's actually reflecting the Old Testament, when he says, the laborer deserves his wages. The laborer deserves his wages. But then in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul also writes, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If you're not willing to work, let him not eat. Now that, I don't know, that sounds a little harsh, right? But no, we're getting at this nuanced idea in the Bible that yes, on one hand, it's, it's right to be compensated fairly and the system should be equitable and just, especially around issues like equal pay for equal work. Employers should seek to pay their employees what they're worth. But at the same time, many people, and maybe most people, tend to think they're worth more than they are. It just seems to be the way the world works. We tend to exaggerate the value that we bring. We tend to get very defensive about our own contribution. We tend to base our value by comparison. So Joe earns $10,000 more than me and he's rubbish. I'm way better than Joe. I bring way more value to this organization. When your boss actually might not agree and you don't really know all that Joe brings or all that Joe does. We have a tendency to to overestimate our own value. And so we want to seek an accurate, objective assessment of the difference we're making and not feel entitled to more than that. Two applications to step on everyone's toes. First of all, younger workers, millennials, you know we have a bad reputation when it comes to this one. And I say we because I make the millennial crew by 10 weeks. (laughs) And my life has none of the hallmarks of a millennial because I have way too many children, right? Um, But we have a bad reputation on this. The caricature would be that we expect work to be fulfilling and energizing. And we expect a big salary and a long vacation. And we expect a corner office and endless verbal affirmations. It's typical to... To want to be treated like the owner, to want to be in the big meetings or make the big decisions without having to carry the weight or responsibility that comes with ownership and without the requisite experience or ability needed to do so well. And so we want to be careful not to feel entitled. But, on the other hand, seasoned workers, seasoned I thought was diplomatic. Be careful not just to be cynical of millennial entitlement. Because entitlement is not the domain of the young. I refer back to our sermon on David and Bathsheba a couple of weeks ago. When David gets himself into a mess in his mid-years. Perhaps you reach these middle years and you look back on a couple of decades of hard work and you you feel now like you've, you've made it. You deserve to kick back a little. Or perhaps you look back at those decades and feel that you never really received the appreciation you deserve and so it's okay for you to take a couple of liberties. Remember, seasoned workers, moral disaster tends to come in later life. And so none of us, whatever stage we're at in our life and career, 
I want to feel entitled. We want to be careful not to feel entitled. Number six. Sixth commandment of making money. Thou shalt give it all you've got. You shall give it all you've got. One of my favorite verses, Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Don't show up half awake with half your heart. Show up ready for the day. Excellence is not a worldly category. Excellence is a decidedly biblical category. We should all be all that we can be. Why? Because God is our boss. And we work for him, not for men. He is the one that made us for Mondays, and we want to give him our best. You know, Jesus didn't make terrible furniture. Like, wouldn't that be surprising? If you bought a table and chair from Jesus, right, and you take it home and, like, a week one of the legs breaks and a bit falls off and, you know, just sort of like, you're like, Jesus, like, this was not what I was expecting, right? I expected more from, from your labors. And the point is, God loves a well-made table. And God loves a well-run meeting. And God loves a well-cleaned floor. He loves anything that is done unto him, unto him, not for men. Now this can be a challenge, I think, if you work in what you might describe yourself as a mediocre environment. A challenge not to let the bar be set by your colleagues or even by your earthly boss while they check Facebook and take a long lunch and mail it in. You should get after it as unto the Lord. It's my paraphrase of Colossians 3. Get after it as unto the Lord. Alternatively, if you work in a very driven environment, while well, we need to beware the dangers of that, and we'll talk about that more in a second, but we also need to recognize that there's some good in that. First Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, write reports, make a sale, fix a leak, prepare a case, arrange a song, track a budget, teach a lesson, clean a nose. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. When we get up in the morning, all of us need to ask, how would I approach this day if Jesus were my boss? And then we need to approach the day that way because Jesus is your boss. We need to attack the day with all the life and energy and creativity and diligence and focus that would come from working for someone who loves us like he does. We want to make sure that we are, just make the most of the day and give it all you've got. Number seven, hang with me, we're closing in. Thou shalt expect it to be hard. Thou shalt expect it to be hard. One pastor imagines the scene. Um, got up on Monday and, and I just said, thank God it's Monday. And I went to work and I sat down at my desk and I pulled open my laptop and I just had an, an inbox that contained a small and very manageable number of emails, all of which contained critically important information. Uh, Thanks to one of these emails, I was able to rescue a Nigerian princess. Uh, (laughs) Saved her from jail, and now she's going to give me part of her inheritance, which you know, of course, I'll I'll tithe to the church. And then two staff members came along with a conflict, and I just solved their conflict with the wisdom of Solomon, much to their thanks, much to their admiration. And then it was time to write the sermon, so I pulled out my laptop and my fingers just started to rattle across the keys and I just wrote the most biblically faithful, culturally relevant, eloquently crafted sermon I've ever written. 
It wasn't this one. Um, <laughs> and then I went home and I had time to fix the toilet and play with the kids and make my wife dinner and get a workout in and watch a movie and read a book and have an early night. <laughs> Said no one ever, right? The Bible is, is much more realistic than that. Yes, work is a gift from God. And yes, we should expect it to be hard. Why? Because work, like everything else, has been tainted by sin. Genesis 3, verse 17. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground that you were to work Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Work, like everything else, has been damaged by the fall. We now have thorns and thistles to contend with. And so, friends, let's not be naive. Let's not be naive. And let's not get discouraged when things are difficult. Expect cranky customers. And expect fidgety students and expect difficult co-workers and expect critical bosses and expect the long commute. It's been long every other day of your life. Why would we not expect it tomorrow? And, you know, expect a slow computer and expect unexpected setbacks and expect difficult challenges. Expect it. Count on it. Plan on it. And then do all that you can to redeem it. A steady hand and a steadfast spirit, diligence for the day, the long view for tomorrow. It is amazing how much you can get done when you expect it to be hard. Number eight, guard your toes again. Thou shalt know when to stop. Thou shalt know when to stop. Proverbs again. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Yes, it's a sin to be lazy. And yes, it's a sin to overwork. Now we tend to go easy on ourselves on this one, especially in this area. You know, like, hey, there are, there are worse sins you could be committing. But remember, rest was important enough to God that he made it one of the real Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Do you know when to stop? It's a challenge to many of us in this area. Two, two quick practical applications. First of all, it's important for us all to have a daily finish time. A daily finish line. A time after which the work day is done. A time after which you will write no more emails and send no more texts and do no more work. A time after which you will go home and see your family and see your friends and be present with them. Otherwise the work week becomes a blur. And we all know what that's like. You awake on Monday and you kind of resurface at some point on Friday. And a lot happened in between but it's all just disappeared. Second application, have a weekly finish line. A time after which the work week is done. An entire day, a Sabbath. I can't make it any more clear than God. A Sabbath day to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. 
or look at work or plan work or think about work or dream about work or have anything to do with work. An entire day to see family and see friends, to go and do something fun, to take a walk, to take a nap, to have some unstructured time, to eat something great, to rest in God's presence. And don't let your life become a blur. You know those months, those seasons where work has just become all consuming? And it's a challenge to us. Slaves don't get a day off. And you are not a slave, you are a son. A son and daughter of the king. And so we take time off, believers, as an act of worship. Why? Because we say, God, the day is done, the week is done, and I'm going home. Because I am not in control of the universe. You are in control of the universe, and so I can go home. And I trust you with all that remains on my desk. I am sure it will still be there on Monday. And you have not called me to sin against you, myself, my family, in order to get it accomplished now. I can leave it there and trust you with it. It's home time. I'm going home. Glass of red. Play with the kids. God says, well done. Well done. It's an act of, of humility and worship. And if you can't do these things, if you can't stop working, you can't turn the phone off, if you can't take a day, you're an addict. And you and I need to approach that as seriously as we would approach any other addiction. For God's sake, for our own sake, for our spouse's sake, and for our kids' sake. Know when to stop. Number nine, thou shalt not retire. Really? Thou shalt not retire? Well, what do I mean by this? Um, Think of it this way. You know our concept of retirement isn't in the Bible. So the American dream of idling your golden years on the golf course or on the beach, enjoying your accumulated comforts, it's just not in here. It's just not, not in here. Now look, it's good to take a vacation, it's good to play golf, it's good to go to the beach. Nothing wrong with that. But God has a greater purpose in mind for your life. Greater purpose in mind for your life. Yes, of course, one day you might stop paid employment. But that doesn't mean that, that God has put you on the bench. That doesn't mean that you're washed up beyond use, surplus to requirements, free to spend your days accomplishing next to nothing still have so much to offer in a season when you have the time to offer it. To mentor, counsel, advise, volunteer, coach, encourage, pray. I can't tell you the difference our senior saints make to this congregation. And what health we would be missing were they not such an active group. For their steady faithfulness, for their unflappability, for their prayers, for their wisdom, for their godly example, for their fun. Uh, One preacher says, finishing life to the glory of Christ means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious. Finishing life to the glory of Christ means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious. Ephesians says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best of the time. Making the best of the time. Because the days are evil. So we shouldn't just have retirement as this Longed hope for a goal after which everything will get easier. And I know that feeling. We get a, like my quarterly retirement statement comes in and I open it up and on it it says retirement age 67 and a half, right? And I'm like, 
I've not even lived half that long. Okay? There's no way I'm going to make it. You know? But it needs to not become this carrot that dangles after which comes purpose and joy. God has more planned for us today and more planned for us tomorrow. As we approach those retirement years, we want to plan to finish better than we started. We want to plan on usefulness in these senior years. We want to plan not to retire. Tenth commandment of making money. This is the most important one. Nudge your neighbor, wake him up. Thou shalt not find your worth in your work. Thou shalt not find your worth in your work. You know, in the Old Testament, idols had names like Baal and Molech, and we laugh and think, how primitive, that they thought idols would make them happy. And then in our oh-so-sophisticated day, we've just rebranded those same idols and given them different names. The idol of money, the idol of success, the idol of power, the idol of Influence. These are the things that we think will make us happy. And very often the tool that we look to to bring us them is work. It's easily, so easy, especially in our city, to get so driven, so focused, so ambitious that we just become obsessed with our work. So let me ask you, do you check your email? This is like the first thing you do in the morning. Is it one of the very last things you do at night? Do you neglect key relationships because you work so much? Do you find yourself elated when work is going well and then despondent when work is going poorly? Has work so captured your heart, your mind, your imagination? Has this good thing become the ultimate thing in your life so that functionally it now controls your identity, your value, your sense of worth? Because the gospel comes to us and says, believer in Jesus Christ, to the Christian, your worth is already established in the gospel. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. We spent 12 weeks in 1 Peter. We didn't get this far. But here's verse 18. For you know, you know this, that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You weren't redeemed with silver or gold, no, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter's saying your worth is not measured in achievements and influence. Your worth is not measured in reputation and success. Your worth is not measured in dollars and cents. Your worth is measured in flesh and blood. The bad news of the gospel would be there's no amount of work we can do to make ourselves right with God. And as soon as we hear that bad news, we hear the good news of the gospel, which is that Jesus went to work. He worked salvation for us so that we could be forgiven anyway. And now there's freedom for the lawbreakers. And not just those who break the Ten Commandments of money. Those who break God's Ten Commandments as well. Anyone who asks forgiveness now receives it full and free and finds Jesus walks with them on the journey. And so we want to remind ourselves, my worth is not measured by the work I do for God, but by the work he has done for me. My worth is not my work. My life is not my resume. I am not my bank balance. My worth is proved at Calvary. My life is hid with Christ, and I am rich beyond all riches. Do you know how wealthy you are this morning? 
strangely, it's through this last commandment, through this gospel, that we're able to live out all the others as well. There you have it, friends, the Ten Commandments of Making Money. Thou shalt thank God this Monday. Thou shalt be a blessing. Thou shalt accumulate wealth to the glory of God. Thou shalt make an honest living. Thou shalt not feel entitled. Thou shalt give it all you've got. Thou shalt expect it to be hard. Thou shalt know when to stop. Thou shalt not retire. Thou shalt not find your worth in your work. Friends, what a workforce we could be. What a difference it would make to this city. What a difference it would make to our witness. If we would wake up tomorrow morning and remember, we were made for Mondays. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we thank you for your word and how how packed it is with guidance for life. But Lord, more than guidance for life, it's packed with gospel. It's packed with good news of what has been accomplished on our behalf. Things we could never accomplish by ourselves. So that as we walk with Christ, as we have been forgiven and embraced by his work on the cross, we can now uh, live anew, even uh, reorienting and remapping how how we approach the work that you have given our hands to do. We're thankful, Lord, that grace changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.